Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. When God came to earth, he did so to start a family. Not a conventional family of dad and mom and brother and sister, but a spiritual family that includes all races and all languages and all cultures and all nationalities and all ages. The Savior came to take from the ranks of humanity and establish a forever family, one formed on earth, but one destined for heaven. As Peter calls it, a chosen generation, a holy nation, God's own special people. Our Lord left the cozy confines of heaven for this rough and tumble earth. He did so with the goal of building a family. Here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us that after 30-odd years among us, after sharing our muck and our mire, Jesus ascended back to heaven, mission accomplished, And now in his wake, in the wake of his work, there is a whole family that has taken and that now carries the matchless name of Jesus Christ. You know, when we think of starting a family, we think of an eager young man leaving behind his parents and going out to find a wife. The two of them establishing a life together. And then comes a baby. Offspring is a sign that that young man is well on his way toward his goal. He's taken on responsibility. He's becoming a grown man. But you know, with God's family, the baby was the beginning. Jesus didn't wait until he was a young man to start his family. He began his family building even as an infant. Even as a lowly baby, he invited the world to follow him. Mary and Joseph were embraced, the first to embrace him. Then the shepherds were summoned. Then Persian kings were guided to his side. And every Christmas, folks all over the world answer that same invitation. More wise men and wise women return to the Bethlehem manger and marvel at the infant that it once cradled. Once a mom and her daughter were unpacking the family's ceramic nativity set, It was time to decorate for Christmas. The three-year-old was able to identify each of the pieces as she pulled them out of the wrapping paper. Here's a donkey, and that's Mary. And oh, he's a shepherd. But when the little girl saw the ceramic baby Jesus molded into the manger, you know, as one single piece, she got real excited. She shouted, here's Jesus in his car seat. Isn't it interesting, if the Almighty God had come to earth in modern times, he would have needed a car seat? Imagine, God in a car seat. The God who steers the universe, whose sovereign will cuts the channel of history, would need to be strapped in and buckled into an infant carrier before he could ride in your car. As one author writes, A child was born who was the high and lofty one made low and helpless. 
The one who inhabits eternity comes to dwell in time. The one whom none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft, indifferent gaze of cattle. The Father of all mercies puts himself at our mercies. You know, when a young man enters a room, the old guard are going to keep him at arm's length. Oh, they'll be cordial to him, but their initial conversation is intended to size him up. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has a distinguished group of older gentlemen who meet every Friday morning back in the cafe. They call themselves the OFC, and their wisdom is renowned. And if a young whippersnapper stumbled into the OFC one morning, spouting off the naivety of youth, they'd shut him up in a heartbeat. Here's my point. A young man, even a grown young man, lacks the drawing power of a little baby. For if you brought a newborn into that room of older men, hey, every one of them would crowd around the bassinet to catch a glimpse. They'd ooh and awe at a baby. The hardest of men grow soft around an infant. In fact, bring a baby into the sanctuary after the church service is over on a Sunday morning, and you know what will happen. He or she will attract a crowd. They'll capture a crowd of people. All the ladies will line up to take turns holding the baby. As a matter of fact, some of the moms even wait a few weeks to bring their newborn to church, knowing that everybody's going to want to hold him and take a peek. And this is one reason God came into the world as a baby. For a baby is the most inviting and welcoming and non-threatening and least intimidating form he could have taken. Have you ever noticed that the mere sight of a baby elicits a smile? Nobody curls up their nose at a baby or rolls his eyes, or stiffens his chin, or clenches his teeth at a baby. You don't get defensive around a baby. A baby is as disarming a creature as you'll ever meet. And this is why Jesus came into the world, in the form that would cause the toughest person to crack a smile. Look at a baby and it softens your heart. You drop your guard. A person becomes more open Yes, it's marvelous to behold, but when God came to earth to start his forever family, he came as a baby boy. Former news correspondent Harry Reasoner, he once commented on the Christmas story. He said, the appearance of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless babe is so revolutionary a thought that it probably could have only come from God. Almost nobody has seen God, and almost nobody has any real idea of what He's like. And the truth is that among men, the idea of seeing God suddenly and standing in a very bright light is not necessarily a completely comforting and appealing idea. But everyone has seen babies, and most people like them. If God wanted to be loved as well as feared, He moved correctly here. If He wanted to know people as well as rule them, He moved correctly If God wanted to be intimately part of man, he moved correctly. Christmas is the story of the great innocence of God the baby, and it has such a dramatic shock toward the heart that if it is not true, nothing is true. God came to earth as a baby, and that baby came to start a family. But God added to his family in a rather remarkable, odd manner. 
First, a teenage girl. I mean, an unwed mother named Mary joined the family. Then a nondescript carpenter named Joseph. And then some rowdy shepherds. And then some strangers that could have passed for terrorists. Not the first candidates I would have picked out to join my family. You know, everybody knows from their backyard football days that when you pick your team, you look for the strongest and the fastest and the smartest and the most talented. I don't think that either Mary or Joseph or the shepherds or the wise men qualified in any of those categories. This was an odd group to add to your family. Think about it. At the time, Mary had a reputation. I mean, the angel who visited her knew that she was a virgin. God and Mary knew that she was a virgin. Later, Joseph is told that she was a virgin. But you can be sure nobody in her hometown believed she was a virgin. You know, years later, the Jewish leaders, they throw jabs at Jesus. And they say this, we were not born of fornication. Isn't it interesting? 30 years later, Mary still wore the scarlet letter. When the angel greeted Mary, he told her, Rejoice, highly favored one. Blessed are you among women. But there were fellow Jews in Nazareth who saw her as a tramp who turned up pregnant. For all their married lives, Joseph and Mary, they wore a stigma. They bore a shame. In fact, all the first invitees to the manger to join God's family were people with an unsavory reputation. Take, for example, the shepherds. Shepherds were roughnecks and lawbreakers. They were the ancient equivalent of gang members. When shepherds came to town, people locked their houses. Chain up your donkey, man. The shepherds are coming. Keep your daughter in her room. The sheriff was put on high alert. A deputy was posted to keep his eye on those shepherds, the sheep gang. It reminds me of the defendant who was asked by the judge to explain the charges against him. He said, I was just doing my Christmas shopping early, Your Honor. The, law, the judge was taken back. He, he said, that's not a crime. How early were you shopping? The man replied, oh, about three hours before the store opened. That could have been a shepherd. They had that sort of reputation. As did the wise men. The mysterious riders who entered Jerusalem were foreigners. They were aliens. And there was no immigration to check their credentials when they crossed the border. They dressed in weird clothes and funny hats, and they spoke a strange language. The Jews, even the Jewish King Herod, viewed them with fear and suspicion. You know, the wise men were actually from Persia. They were Babylonians. If it were today, they could have been the Iraqi Republican Guard or a Hezbollah hit squad come from Iran. These were the same folks who a few hundred years earlier had ridden into Jerusalem with swords drawn and with spears. These were the people who had torn down the walls of the city and set fire to the temple and slaughtered the citizenry. The Jews, they didn't murder. They took back to Babylon as prisoner. If Al-Qaeda had been recruiting candidates at the time, the wise men, they might have been on their list. And yet, amazing, amazingly, God even invited the wise man to the manger. You know, first century Jews, they would have seen this convoy of oriental magi and accused God of fraternizing with the enemy. What is the God of Israel doing inviting strangers, even our enemies, to join his family? 
Sort of reminds us of how God has treated us, doesn't it? Romans 5 verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. When God saved us, he also could have been accused of consorting with the enemy. One year, a kindergarten class planned to recite the Christmas story in their own words. The parents and the relatives, they thought the performance was delightful. The kids were all super cute. But one little girl stole the show when she kept referring to the Virgin Mary as the Urchin Mary. You know, an urchin is an uncivilized street kid. Imagine calling Mary an urchin. But that wasn't far from the truth. Mary and Joseph were peasants. They had very little money, and they had no place to sleep. They spent the night in a barn. Mary and Joseph and their baby came from the ranks of the homeless. And soon they'd be on the run. They had to flee to Egypt to avoid arrest. Imagine the holy family was on the lamb. Oh, yes, the Virgin Mary was also the urchin Mary. Reminds me of another little girl who played Mary in the grade school pageant. On the night of the performance, she insisted on abandoning her costume and wearing her new red dress. Neither the play's director nor her helpers nor the girl's parents could persuade this little girl to wear her costume. The little girl insisted if she couldn't wear her new red dress, she wasn't going out on the stage. And it was too late to find a replacement. Finally, the director apologized to the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, Mary, the mother of Jesus, will appear tonight in a new red dress. But that's when the little girl heard and she shouted out from the backstage. She says, and if Mary had been given a new red dress, she would have worn hers too. The point, though, is that the urchin Mary had no new red dress. It wasn't in the budget, man. I mean, Joseph was a middling carpenter trying to support a family on an hourly income. There was no room in the budget for any new red dresses. Mary rode to Bethlehem in tattered rags and bedded down to give birth in a stone-hewn feed trough. The only softness came from the saliva-stained straw. Eight days later, rather than offer a lamb... Joseph made the pauper sacrifice of two turtle doves for Jesus to be circumcised. These were displaced and disenfranchised folks. And they had just registered for a fresh round of taxes. I mean, their plight was getting worse. Yet these were the people with whom God wanted to start a family. The urchin Mary. Old blue-collar Joe. A gang of rowdy shepherds and some freakish strangers from Babylon. You know, Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 12 is a great verse. It reveals that first century Jewish believers would find forgiveness for their sin and a relationship with God beyond the margins of Judaism. That verse points out how that in the Old Testament, the high priest burned the sacrifice outside the camp of Israel. And this is why Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem's gates. In essence, God went beyond the boundaries of typical religion, of the Judaism of the day, to make mankind right with him. God saves his family on the fringes, outside the mainstream, beyond the tradition. His salvation is new and atypical and radical. And here's the point. 
If God saves his family out on the edge, on the fringes, why not start his family on the fringes? You see, rather than go to Jerusalem's religious hierarchy and invite the priests to come to the manger, rather than invite King Herod in the royal court, rather than invite the aristocrats and the bureaucrats, God does the unthinkable. He goes out on society's edge to the peasant couple, to the few grungy shepherds, to some weirdo wise guys, and he invites the least deserving and the most surprising to be part of the Father's eternal family. Here's the glorious truth. Rich or poor, accepted or despised, stained or innocent, stranger or homeboy, royal or ragged, there is room for you in God's family. The baby wasn't given a room in the inn that night. That baby was the Savior of the world. And he is ready to accept everyone else who wouldn't have gotten a room that night either. As Philip Brooks once wrote, Everywhere, everywhere, Christmas tonight, for the Christ child who comes is master of all, no palace too great, no cottage too small. You see, Christmas reaches where everyone lives. Charles Wesley once spent the night locked in a jail cell with prisoners who were scheduled to be executed the very next day. Because of his witness of Jesus, those men who died did so persuaded that their sins had been forgiven and that the Lord was preparing for them a home in heaven. God was with them in their darkest hour. And this is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, his Christmas name, or God with us. For Jesus joined us on our spiritual death row to give us hope, to provide us a pardon Jesus loves us enough to join our plight, and now he invites you and me to join his family. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the babe in the manger invites you to come and be a part of God's forever family. During World War II, families that had sons away from home on the battlefield hung a star in the window of their house. A father was explaining this custom to his little boy when the child looked up into the night sky and he saw the stars all twinkling in the heavens. He shouted, look, God hung a star in his window. He must also have a son in the war. And that is exactly what Christmas is about. God sent his son into the battle. Jesus fought against bigotry and self-righteousness and doubt and fear and lust and anger and hypocrisy and bitterness and hopelessness and slavery and pride and on and on we could go. And then he took all of that sin upon his shoulders and he paid its penalty in full. You see, Jesus has reconciled us to God. That means that because of what Jesus did, God has buried the hatchet. He now holds out an olive branch to you and me. Did you know that today God is in heaven willing to let bygones be bygones? He's no longer angry with you over your sin. Instead, God is welcoming us. He's waving to us. He's inviting us to embrace Jesus and join his family. I bet you didn't know the origin of the mistletoe. Druids of northern Europe, they believed that the mistletoe had healing powers. 
that it could cure disease and various ailments. It was even the cure for broken relationships. Thus, when two enemies found themselves under a tree with mistletoe, they saw it as a sign that they should lay down their weapons and be reconciled. When Christian missionaries arrived there in northern Europe, they used this pagan tradition to illustrate what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus ended the hostility between God and man. On the cross, God laid down his weapons, and now he asks us to do the same. Through the work of Jesus, we can be reconciled to God and truly know his love. I heard the story of two Americans who were invited to Russia. It was 1994. It was after the fall of the communist Soviet state. And they had come to the former Soviet Union in order to teach ethics and morals to those former communists who were void of both. In an orphanage, the men were invited and given the opportunity to tell the children about the Christmas story. And to help the kids remember, they brought crayons and construction paper and scissors and glue and tape from which the kids could make their own manger scenes. One of the Americans, he recalls a six-year-old boy named Misha. As he looked at Misha's manger scene, he noticed two babies in the manger, not just one. He asked Misha why there were two babies. Well, Misha, he recalled the story as he had been told. But when it came to Mary putting the baby Jesus in the manger, he started to ad-lib. He said, when Mary laid the baby in the manger, Jesus looked at me and asked me if I had a place to stay. And I told him, no, I have no mama and papa or a place to stay. Jesus told me I could stay with him. So I got into the manger. And that's when Jesus told me I could stay with him for always. This is what Christmas is about. There's room in the manger for you. Hey, when God started a family, he began with a baby. And he invited people to the manger. And then he added to his family peasants and carpenters and roughnecks and freaks. And since that first Christmas, God has proven over and over again and again that no matter who you are, if you trust in Jesus, you are welcome to join him in that same manger. You see, Christmas is all about the love of God and the extent to which God is willing to go to share his love with the least and the lowest all the way to a manger. Realize God's love is a love that's always stooping and reaching and inviting and embracing and never-ending It's been said, the manger is the one place you're not too bad to get in or too good to stay out. But here's God's desire. Once you've joined Jesus in the manger, He wants you to invite others to join as well. He wants you and me to communicate His love to those nearby. Even if that means leaving our circle of friends and the warmth of our loved ones and reaching out to the people on the fringes of our society, the nobodies and the rejected and the forgotten, the peasants and the rowdies and the strangers. You see, there was no room for Jesus in the inn. But here's the question for us. Is there room around your Christmas table for someone who has nowhere to go? Is there room in your holiday season for the one who's usually passed over? Is there room in your family for the person Jesus died to save and make a part of his family? 
1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter. I'm sure you know it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Love suffers long. Love is kind and so forth. 1 Corinthians 13 defines real love and the love that we should show one another. But here's a Christmas version of the love chapter. If I decorate my house perfectly with plaid bows, strands of twinkling lights and shiny balls, but do not show love to my neighbor, I'm just another decorator. If I slave away in the kitchen baking dozens of Christmas cookies, preparing gourmet meals and arranging a beautifully adorned table at mealtime, but do not show love to people, I'm just another cook. If I work at the soup kitchen, carol in the nursing home, and give all that I have to charity, but do not show love to my own family, it profits me nothing. If I trim the spruce with shimmering angels and snowflakes and icicles and put strings of lights all over my house and attend a myriad of holiday parties and even make it to church on Christmas Eve, but do not focus on the Christ, I have missed the point. Love stops the cooking to hug the child. Love sets aside the decorating to kiss the husband. Love is kind, though harried and tired. Love doesn't envy another's home that has coordinated Christmas china and linens. Love doesn't yell at the kids to get out of the way, but is thankful that they are there to be in the way. Love doesn't give only to those who can give in return, but to those who can't. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Video games will break. Pearl necklaces will be lost. Golf clubs will rust, but giving the gift of love will endure. And you see, it's love that makes for the merriest Christmases. In this year, if you've yet to get in the Christmas spirit, if you've been plugging along but with little enthusiasm, if this Christmas season has just been a ho-hum and a humbug Christmas for you, then here's a suggestion. Don't just focus on you and your family. Let the love of Jesus spill over to others. Get out on the edge of your life. Take a trip to the fringe. Reach out to someone on the outside. Be kind to a person who won't ever be able to return the favor. Show love to a person who's poor or who has a stained reputation or the rowdy type like a shepherd or to the guy who's a little weird or to the family who's foreign to your culture or to the newcomer to your neighborhood. Invite a Mary or a Joseph or a shepherd or a wise man to join God's family by being part of yours. Take a chance this Christmas and be like the baby in the manger. Be humble. Be inviting. Be welcoming. Be approachable. Try to make an addition to God's family. Reminds me of the wife who couldn't think of a gift to give her husband, Mike. They had recently attended their son's wrestling match. His team had gone up against an inner city squad. And since their son's team was far better trained and far better equipped, they won hands down. In fact, they won every single match that day. In fact, the outcome had upset her husband. Mike wished that at least one of the inner city kids had won a match. He knew how disheartened the kids must have felt. That's when his wife thought of his present. She went to the local sporting goods store and she bought miscellaneous headgear and wrestling shoes. 
And she sent them anonymously to that inner city team. And then she put an envelope in her family's Christmas tree telling her husband what she had done and that it had been a gift to him. When Mike opened the envelope that Christmas and read the note, he couldn't stop beaming. It was his favorite gift. It was all he could talk about all day long. Well, each year thereafter, this wife followed the tradition that she'd established. It was always an envelope for her husband in the Christmas tree. One year, they sent a group of mentally challenged kids to a hockey game. Another year, a check went to a family whose house had burned down, and on and on it went. Though the kids were grateful for their gifts, every Christmas, Dad's gift, his envelope in the tree, was the main attraction. But you see, the story doesn't end there. Let me let you listen to this wife as she finishes her story. She says, we lost Mike last year to cancer. And when Christmas rolled around, I was so wrapped up in grief, I barely got the tree up. But Christmas Eve found me placing an envelope in the tree. And in the morning, it was joined by four more. Each of our kids, unbeknownst to the others, placed an envelope in the tree for their dad. Because this wife went out of her way to show love, God's love to others. She blessed her husband while he was alive. And she left him a legacy in the heart and in the lives of her kids. You see, she had the true Christmas spirit. She followed in the footsteps of the God who left heaven and climbed into a manger and reached out in love. And as a result of what Jesus did today, God's whole family in heaven and earth bears His name. Let me close with one final story told by a mom who had attended her grade school son's Christmas program. When her son's class rose to sing the song entitled Christmas Love, the children brought to the platform placards with different letters printed on them. The kids all lined up in order. And as they sang the song, they turned over the placards, revealing a succeeding letter in the words, Christmas love. When the card with the C was flipped over, everyone said in unison, Christ, C is for Christmas. The next kid turned over the H. H is for happy, and on and on it went with each letter. But when the kid holding the M accidentally turned his letter over upside down, everyone snickered and laughed. That is, until all the remaining letters had been revealed. And when the song was finally over, the string of letters that stretched across the stage read, Christ was love. What everyone had assumed was a mistake wasn't such a mistake after all. Christ was, and He is, and He will always be love. And Christmas is about His love for you. The baby in the Bethlehem manger not only demonstrates God's love for us, but it invites us to love God in return and then to show His love to the people closest to us and even to the people not so close. Never forget, Christmas is about the people on the ragged edges of life. It's about going out on the fringes and it's about loving those that only God would think to love. Above all, Christmas is about reaching and reconciling and welcoming and inviting. Always remember, when God started a family, He began with a baby.